0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox censoring the narratives of the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing? I'm doing really well. That is awesome. That is awesome. There's a lot to talk about this week for news. I'm not entirely sure where to start, but I think uh, the first big thing that happened within the last week was this uh, Chick-fil-A business. Do you want to say anything about that?
1: Yeah, so it looks like Chick-fil-A, and it's not clear exactly where they are with their their strategy. But what they're doing is, they made some type of announcement that they're no longer going to donate money to certain controversial groups that many LGBT activists uh, said, yeah, this is these are homophobic, don't do that, we cannot support Chick-fil-A. Yeah, yeah. And I think the motivation behind this is, Chick-fil-A is trying to branch out into new markets. They t- They wanted to put establishments in airports and in the UK and there's, they've gotten a lot of pushback, even here in Boston.
0: Yeah, they were supposed to have a location right downtown.
1: Yeah, so for many years, Mayor Menino here in Boston was like, no, we're not having Chick-fil-A in Boston Be- precisely because of this this thing. Um, and then they came out with this statement saying, well, our obligations to these certain groups are over, and now we're going to start over and, and not, not do that. Now, then a lot of people were like, yay, now I can eat at Chick fil A again. But other I people was definitely were one of those folks. <laughs> <laughs> I what was she? like,
0: At last, guilt free chicken. <laughs> I was I was ready.
1: And then others were like, no, that's never enough. And then the then you've got the right wing pushback of now they all came out saying that Chick fil A betrayed Christianity. Which if they're saying that, they probably actually did something, right? Probably in the right direction although it's not a betrayal of Christianity it's just a betrayal of a certain infection that has imposed itself on Infections. the body of Christ yes good word strong word and and then uh, and then so now Chick-fil-a has got both sides mad and then the the conservative side are saying well you're never going to appease the, the leftists and so say look it's never going to be enough which which is true in a way, uh, mm-hmm. but then it looks like Chick Fil A, in addition, walked back their walk back, and they they took back. Th- so they're basically now saying it's it's unclear what they're saying. Yeah, but, but it saying, seems like they that they walked then? back what they said, and they're like, well, we're gonna donate to whomever we want now, and it's we're still committed to our Christian values, and so it's unclear where that leaves. Chick Fil A and where that's gonna go and and still the um, even with that the the right wingers are mad it is not enough so there must be something good in mm-hmm. the in this news event mm-hmm. because the they're still mad and apparently like one of the groups that they want to donate to is called Covenant House which does homeless ministry which if you're gonna do homeless ministry you have to be pro LGBT because there's so many homeless. Uh, LGBT youth who are either not safe at their home or they are kicked out right by un unaffirming parents. So y- yeah. There this is going to be a pro LGBT homeless ministry and apparently Chick-fil-A was allegedly going to donate to the, I don't even know the details, but that's not th- the details aren't so much important, but to me as the whole flow of this because this conversation would not have happened in the 90s because everyone would have been like oh of course we can be as anti-gay as we want and still sell as much chicken as we want Mm -hmm. now they're in a place where they actually have to navigate a large a large and wait, weightful body of of pro LGBT people that are like no we're not gonna we're not gonna take this yeah that would not have happened in the 90s and I think that is a sy- symptom that the right-wingers are losing and are going to lose the culture war on this issue.
0: I think they're definitely fighting a bit of a losing battle when it comes to um, you know, trying to fight general sensibility when it comes to how people feel about them. Whether or not that's actually going to affect their bottom line, like that remains to be seen because Chick-fil-A's views aren't exactly new. They didn't come out of nowhere. We've known about beliefs they had for a while, and these organizations, what some of these organizations that they support do. Like, I know for a fact they support an organization that has supported a law in Uganda that allows it, allows people to kill gay folks, basically. That's not really affecting Chick-fil-A's bottom line. Now, I'm pretty sure there's there's definitely a racial element to this as well, because if they were supporting a law that allowed for the death of a European descended individuals in another European country or something like that, I think there would be more to be said there. However, yeah. I just do not believe that this is going to affect their bottom line that strongly because people really like Chick-fil-A. They like their food. They like their customer service. I mean, the memes about their the quality of their customer service are just you know, endless. So I, 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 I'm not under the impression that this is really going to affect their bottom line yet just based on where Chick-fil-A is currently. I feel like, though, some more work has to happen before Chick-fil-A's current value system is really put under scrutiny by America at large. But we are moving in a direction that says their time may be running out.
1: I think there's, yeah, I think there's been a big shift in the past five to ten years. Certainly. Like it, it's 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 completely different. Yeah. Uh, just... Just what I see now. Not that the everything's fixed, obviously, but right, I think fixed. I think we've we've gone over a particular critical turning point. That now, now it's it's just remaining to see how it unfolds. But our victory is assured.
0: Mm. I will be able to eat the chicken if they actually walk back this walk back of their walk back.
1: Okay, <laughs>
0: I will I will start eating Chick Fil A if that happens. Hopefully it does, because Chick-fil-A is delicious, but it's hateful chicken. So I'm going to stay. I'm going to keep my business at Popeye's. I'm probably going to keep my business at Popeye's anyways. Oh. I really like
1: Popeye's. Oh, good.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I, that, that's all the thoughts I got about that. So uh, a big thing that came out, I think, either yesterday or two days ago. I don't know if you heard about this, but BYU-Idaho apparently is no longer accepting Affordable Care Act-compliant full-coverage Medicaid. As an acceptable form of health coverage as an insurance waiver option, um, and apparent and I guess a lot of students at BYU, Idaho rely on that to cover mm-hmm. the health care mm-hmm. needs. Mm-hmm. So basically, this is forcing a lot of students to not re-enroll or to drop out of BYU, Idaho, and a lot of students aren't unable to register because you know a lot of these students have Medicaid as their health insurance provider, and now it's not adequate proof of insurance according to BYU-Idaho. It looks like this comes a day after there's an expansion on Medicaid coverage in Idaho. Like that's when this announcement came out, just a day after. So I'm not entirely sure what that expansion of Medicaid coverage in Idaho means. I still gotta look into that. But um, the only reason I can see for this is that I'm guessing the school made the decision because perhaps of some data that indicated that it would be impractical for the local medical community to be able to adequately um, support folks with only Medicaid coverage. At least that's what I'm hearing through the grapevine. I can't find anything in the news saying as much. Everything is mostly speculation and they keep saying that the school has not given a reason for, for this change, but what I'm hearing through the grapevine is that they just see it's impractical for the local medical community to support them with only the medicaid coverage but even that seems pretty suspect i don't i don't yeah. think the, i don't think the local providers would really
1: validate that particular complaint yeah i just have two thoughts on this one is first of all if these students are on Medicaid, they probably can't afford certain other plans or certain other uh, insurance. And, and so they would have to do that. They would have right. to buy another plan In order to, to, B- to be cool. school. Yeah, to go and to I, school. I mean, that's that's really not cool bec- because the whole point of Medicaid is to provide this. Uh, uh, and the whole thing about the affordable, affordable Care Act anyway is to like make sure that everyone has access to health care. Right. And the second thing about this is one of the problems is this isn't like some you know, state school that, that is neutral on issues of morality and justice and right. community. This is a, a school where I am imagining 99% of the students are members of the church. Mm-hmm. We should take care of one another, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We have 200 years of history of we're supposed to take care of each other. Mm-hmm. And I don't see like all of their ancestors who crossed the plains and made tremendous sacrifices to take care of one another. Now they're like abandoning people who are members of the church. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's got to be some other way of of dealing with this and, and rallying around the people who need the most support. Right, right. It doesn't, it's just
0: not a good look. We
1: should be a light to the world. People should look at the BYUs and say, look, there's something here that the world desperately needs. Yeah. An example of community and compassion and organization. Yeah. Like, what's the problem with, you know, we're a church run by business people. Why don't we have our business people, like, figure out a solution? I don't
0: know, man. That's a really good question. But for now, I just would really settle for an explanation because, I mean, this comes out of, almost nowhere for one thing and th- it's just such short notice people are trying to go to school in like next semester there are people that are not going to be able to enroll next semester simply because this sudden change in what's going to be acceptable health care coverage is not going to allow a mm-hmm. lot of people to go to school there are married couples who were both going to school at one point but now only one of them can afford to go because they don't just yeah. have an extra you know three to four hundred or five hundred dollars just laying around for them to Spend a month on additional healthcare coverage. Mm. It's just not realistic for them to do. So I, I really hope somebody on the school board or whatever just explains what the purpose of this is and what they're trying to do. And you
1: know, um, part of the, part of the other thing is is the difference between Ohio and Massachusetts on this, because in Massachusetts we have Mass Health, we have basically Romney Care, we have. Ways that people can plug in if they can't afford health care that they can they can get it. Um, and I'm wondering, like, well, why? Why don't why doesn't Ohio do something like that? Why don't we as a country do something like that? What? Idaho, you mean? Idaho. What did I say? Ohio. Whoops. That's what I meant. <laughs> Idaho. Sure. Yeah. So why doesn't Idaho do that? And why don't we as a country do that? Um because having this patchwork and piecemeal healthcare system in the United States really doesn't make, it leaves people out, and it doesn't make sense, and it's just a mess. So that's yeah. all I'm going to say on that. All right, cool. So there's a larger problem that needs to be fixed other than just what's going on at BYU, Idaho. This past Wednesday was the Trans Day of Remembrance. Right.
0: I believe the holiday is intended to honor those who were victims of Anti-transgender violence,
1: yes, and um, it's been around for a few decades. It's given it's giving a place um, a solemn way of remembering those, especially those who have died in the past year, mm-hmm. in the previous year. Yeah, and typically the names are read at at commemorations, and it's it's a very real thing, um, and Part of the other thing is there is a problem if the only time we notice trans people is when they're dead. Mm-hmm. We need to to acknowledge and uplift and celebrate trans people when they're alive. Yeah, and work towards liberation and justice and dignity, and not just. I think there's there could be somewhat of a parallel with the the Black Lives Matter movement of what happens if we only notice black people. We only hear of them when they're killed by cops. Mm-hmm. right There's some people that's the only time I hear of them. I've never heard of them before. And then I hear their names in the news, I'm like, Oh, there's an entire life that happened before this death, and that's that these things need to be be centered. And so we just need to remember. I think of the list that I saw had three hundred and eleven names of trans people mm-hmm. murdered in the United States in the past year. Past year. The past year. Jeez. Yeah. And, um, and it's it's a problem not just in the U.S. but around the world. Yeah. There's there's just something needs to be done. And I don't think that. Um. L- just like I was saying with the the pretty white gay men, there needs to be these stories too, and and I don't think there's a um, finite zero sum empathy, right? Empathy towards one can can help you be more empathetic to others. There's no it shouldn't be a we shouldn't have a scarcity mindset with this, right. but realize right. look, we're all we've got to we've got to do these things. Mm-hmm and do the right thing for our trans siblings. Mm-hmm.
0: And there are several ways we can do that. My instinct is to ask what we can do, you know, to help our trans sib- our trans brothers and sisters and uh well, siblings. I'll just say siblings. But there's a whole um, you know, you talked about this an episode or two ago that many of the voices that are advocating for change are simply voices we don't have access to because we don't search them out. Right. And we can simply be plugged into that world simply by following the people who are on the front lines of this fight. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. make an effort to, I'll just echo what De- Derek said last week or the week before, in that if you're looking to help, just listen to those voices by following trans activists or uh, high profile trans folks on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. They will be talking about these issues often. It's, pro- it's the primary reason I know anytime a trans person is, is murdered and, the primary way i know how how to fight transphobia in general is because they are providing resources on a fairly regular basis. so
1: yeah, and especially within the church people say lgbt but most of that is focused on gay men. like if you look at the the websites or any time they talk about lgbt, they don't really talk about the t. right. um on either side it seems like. right. and so we need to to up, uplift that conversation.
0: yeah. Uh, Speaking of that particular, not necessarily that conversation, but the LGBTQ conversation, Jeffrey R. Holland was interviewed this week. I forget on which network, but it was with regard to the policy changes recently with regard to LGBTQ individuals. How would you summarize this interview? You said you seem to imply that he made several concessions during the course of this four minute interview. Yeah,
1: I think... Well, here's, here's some of what he said. He, right. he started out by saying, and we don't have the whole interview, we just had clips like, of it. Yeah, pieces of it. And it looks like he's talking about policy changes in general. We didn't have any specific comments from him on any specific change. But there has been a lot of changes recently, and so he's talking about policy changes in general. He says that Revelation is an ongoing process. And that is so true. If you look at the... The biblical record, it's always line upon line. There's more to unfold, things like that. We should never have an arrogance about what we know. Right, right. And that leads into his next point. He said that the Lord seldom, seldom spells it out in detail. Mm-hmm. And I think so many people assume that the plan of salvation is known completely from every angle, from every pot, and it's not. We've got glimpses. And hopes and imperfect visions, seeing through glass darkly. There's a lot we don't know. There's more we don't know about yeah. eternal life than we do know. Yeah, and that should give everyone pause, and it should give everyone, including the leaders of the church, some humility. And I think yeah. Elder Holland kind of showed some humility here because he didn't come in saying, "Well, we've got this all figured out. We know what's going on, and and we've got we've got this." Mm-hmm. They're like, "No." when we make these changes in policy, it reflects the fact that we don't know everything. Right. We don't know everything in in advance.
0: I really like what you said about that, that we shouldn't have an arrogance about what we know. You know what I'm saying? Anytime I, I think about that on a regular basis, particularly when I hear a gay person speak about what they would like to see happen in the church. And then inevitably always there's a straight white male who jumps in to say, that's not going to happen. That'll never change. You're barking up the wrong tree or something that just presumes this knowledge of the way things are and the way things they will be in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, I really appreciated Elder Holland displaying that humility and saying that we don't have all the answers. We don't know what things are going to look like in the future. I don't know what church membership is going to look like in five to 10 years from now. Like that's that's pretty impressive. I wouldn't necessarily call that a concession, but I do call that a... uh, And uh, an acknowledgement that we don't have all the answers, which is a big deal coming from a member of the Quorum of the Twelve.
1: I mean, it's a concession in the sense that there's a lot of people on the ground, like the the popular local members who think who have this attitude that they just know everything. And they and it really refutes that. Like uh-huh. here you have one of the twelve, one of the leading members of the twelve saying, We don't know everything and we get things in bits and pieces and that's mm-hmm. why these we sometimes we change the policies because yeah. we get we get more information and, and I love what he said he said that that they that the quorum of the twelve is mindful of always wanting to do the right thing in every way. He also said, When you hurt, I hurt. Yeah. And um, I think that's that gives some degree of hope. Yeah. Some degree of hope. And I love what he said. He said, this is the church of happy endings. And I firmly believe that. We just need to implement that. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Taking a, taking a cue from Sister James, um, Jane Elizabeth Manning James, I'm going to say, well, are there no happy endings for me Mm -hmm. in the church Mm -hmm. right where where's my happy endings yeah and when people think about that it should give them some pause and here's here's the other thing about this everyone when you ever whenever we talk about these things invariably people on the ground local people will say oh but these these leaders of the church they're all good men and they're all kind and and they're all and, and yeah they are they've got a lot of kindness but kindness isn't going to solve this problem. Right. If kindness could solve the problem, it would have been solved already. Most people in the church are kind. Yeah. Right? That's not what we need. We don't need kindness. We need two things. One is an understanding of the injustice, and two, a plan to to combat it. And kindness isn't either of those two things. And in some cases, many of our members of the church, not only they do they not understand the injustice, they even deny that there's an injustice against my people. Yep. They think it's, oh, that's just the way it is. or, right. Or that's, uh, oh, that's too bad for you or mm-hmm. something like that. And I'm like, no, that's, that's really far down. Pity is really far down on the riddle scale of homophobia. Yeah. And just accepting it the way it is is... is completely ignoring the, the fact that this is a man-made mistake. It's completely yeah. um, arbitrary and artificial to exclude my people from the same blessings that everyone else considers as being a basic part of human life. A
0: birthright. They yeah. They view it as their birthright. Yeah.
1: Um, so that's kind of where I want to go with that is, Is—is yeah, the leaders are kind, but that's, that's not going to solve the problem. Right. That's not gonna bring us our happy
0: endings. Everybody our happy endings. We need
1: our, uh, we need an understanding of the injustice, a thorough understanding of the injustice, which people refuse to do, Mm -hmm. and a plan for change, a solid plan for change, which also people refuse to do.
0: And also, in order for those things to happen, members of that community need to be on the front lines. They need to be given, Mm -hmm. they need to be given more power. In order for both of those things to happen, significant power needs to be given to the people who are most affected right. by what would the what be what would be those changes? Sorry, yeah.
1: And I'm I'm curious to what extent the leaders of our church are listening to women because they've made some changes in the past five years. You know, that are inching towards a more a more egalitarian. It's not perfect, but a more egalitarian. Approach t- towards women in the church, and it and these were changes that women have been asking for. Right. So they must have been listening, I think. I so hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Maybe that that shows that shows some indication of of where we could go as a church. Maybe. So I think that's all I had to say about Elder Holland's comments. But some of those can be very useful when talking to local members who th- who just imagine have this almost fairy tale idea that the prophets are somehow magical beings that just know everything right. they don't.
0: They don't. We say it and we remind members on a semi-regular basis but we still don't seem to be getting it and I don't know why we're not getting it is it because we don't want to or is it because we don't say it enough? I don't I know think there's the a
1: cultural is. problem in that people don't want to do work. Because if I if I offload all of this theological work and moral and ethical work to someone else, and I don't have to do any work. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. they all did it all for me. I just have to um, act like a robot and download everything they've done to my brain. I don't have to do anything. They, they want an easy way out. They don't wanna do the hard work of wrestling with the kid that's in the same room with them right. who cannot have the same experience in church that they did and then they're on the hook for dealing with it, right? right. They're like, they just outsource it to someone else and how is that going to turn you into celestial adults it's not like god wants us to learn responsibility and initiative and a coherent sense of internal strength and ethics which Mm -hmm. if you're outsourcing all of your moral development to someone else then you're you're not not becoming like god you are not developing at all right and I think that's the whole message of the plan of salvation is gra- God gradually gives us more and more responsibilities and less and less spoon-feeding. And and then we have to uh, grow into that, and some people don't want to do that. Yeah. Because it's, it, is, it is scary. There is some uncertainty there. It's scary, there. and it's hard. It's a lot of work. Yeah, but it's necessary because you can't, there's no golden road to exaltation. You have to go through the the journey. No one else can do it for you because you are the one that gets changed.
0: This is going to be some people's Gethsemane. like you know. Or part of their Gethsemane is wrestling with those very things, wrestling with whatever work that is that they need to do to make this a more habitable hospitable and hospitable place for other folks. Mm-hmm. If that means wrestling with their homophobia or with their racism, then... That's what it's going to be right Derek, for the last over the course of the last two weeks, I think we've had about three or four high profile mass shootings and by high profile, I just mean that the news said something about them yeah we've had we've had a lot, and something that we've talked about recently was that your school has an active shooter defense drill, right
1: right, so we went through uh, the school where I work, we went through a training just this past week on on what to do in case of an active shooter, um, things around lockdown, countering the threat, and evacuating, and and when to do what and what what all that looks like. Yeah, and I think it was a really good training. It it made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I learned a lot from it as well. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a significant risk. Um, not I don't know how frequent it is or what the percentage of people who will die from an in a mass shooting. But the thing is, it could happen, and we should be prepared. You know, tornadoes are, are relatively rare, but and fires are rare, but we prepare for those. Mm-hmm. You should always be prepared, and so that I I'm glad for that. Did you? What were your thoughts or questions for I, me on that?
0: Yeah, just. The thing was, I, I wanted to know what you felt initially about this idea of an active shooter defense drill or seminar, whatever it is, because I know that Parkland had an active shooter defense drill one month before the shooting actually happened. Mm-hmm. I, my martial arts school has an active shooter defense seminar every quarter, and I'm going to be honest, when I first heard about that, I was immediately put off, and I couldn't really articulate why. But I think part of it had to do with this notion that one, we live in a world where there is a demand for an active shooter defense seminar, like these things sell out on a yeah. regular basis. But secondly, I wanted to know, like I, I seriously doubted the effectiveness of these of these drills, of these seminars. And where kids are concerned, I seriously wonder. It, it, it would be one thing if there was no cost to having these drills. If there was no, if the if the if the monetary cost was relatively minor and if the physical and mental cost of these drills mm. was r- relatively minor. Like it doesn't cost a lot to prepare for a fire or a tornado even though those things are rare. Now, active shooter situations are even more rare than that but the preparate to prepare for them imposes a serious psychological cost on children in particular. And further, I don't know how effective that training can be
1: if they only go through it like once
0: a month or once a quarter, do you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, let me just say a little bit about it. So what we did wasn't a drill with the students. This is something that all the teachers and staff went through. Okay. And it basically talked about sort of a research-based approach to uh, things that they've learned by examining actual cases and and looking at the data. Because w- when I taught many years ago, the lockdown procedure was basically you hide in the room and pretend you're not there. You know, you turn out the lights, you block everything, and you're quiet, and you just pretend you're there and hope that the shooter... But here's the thing. That doesn't make any sense because the school, during the school day, is all the classrooms are pretty much going to be full if someone walks in, and it's it, it doesn't seem to it seems too passive and it and it turns out in the data show that that actually doesn't help as much as having more options. Lockdown could be one of your options, but thinking about when is the right time to evacuate. Right. Like um if you can evacuate safely, that's that's preferable to sitting you know huddled in one corner in a dark room right. waiting for whatever, right? And so just just looking at the data and saying, okay, these are the options that are somewhat more empowering. And here are the, all the options. And there was no protocol of you should choose this at this time. It was like, here are your options. And in the moment you're going to have to decide based on your best judgment, um, what, what to do. Okay. And I think that makes sense because when, uh, when faced with the choice of lockdown versus trying to counter the threat versus trying to evacuate, having all those options on the table can help you make make better decisions and save more lives according to this research. Okay.
0: My general understanding has been that there's not a ton of research on these events simply because there's not a lot of them and it would be impossible to know whether or not or how effective these actual seminars or these drills are to prevent shootings or to be significantly more safe simply because they're so hard to parse, you know? Right. Um, but just as someone who, you know, is currently studying self-defense, I know that there's a difference between knowing what to do and being able to do it when the situation arises. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I know when a certain technique or a given defense is in my body. You know what I'm saying? Because I've repeated it many times. I know what to do. Even in a high-stress situation, my body just does what it's supposed to do. But my primary concern, even though I don't disagree that these events, that these seminars can be effective from a tactical perspective, I believe that they're only effective for people who get to do them on a regular Mm -hmm. basis. I really like what you said about people following their gut or following their intuition. That seems to be really good advice for a lot of these situations because that's that's when we're going to rise to the occasion of our best knowledge and of our best judgment. Not so much of a training that we've done yeah. once. And I don't think it's fair to expect people to rely on that if they, only ex- if they only experience it once and that in a relatively low stress environment. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, but I, it's obviously not gonna be perfect and it's not gonna cover every possibility but i think there's some things that can be improved like teaching people like the correct way of breaking a window okay which i didn't realize that there's a wrong way to break the window mm-hmm. um and i'm sure you're interested so i'm going to tell you <laughs> people think oh you just take something heavy and throw it at the middle of the window but the problem is the w- the middle of the window is the most uh, has the most give to it because it's the farthest away from the frame so it can it can be a little bit more resilient so you need to uh Break it in, in in a corner. Okay. Um, and they said to break it in the top right corner or the top left corner because if you break it at the top, then it'll all fall down. Or if you break it at the bottom, then you have all this glass above you. Mm-hmm. Um. And so just like, oh, now I know how to break a window if I need to. Mm. If I need to evacuate. Yeah, definitely some merit to that. So the so the just little things like that and things to be prepared for make a lot of sense.
0: I guess I'm just put off by this idea that people are making money off of these drills and these seminars when the psychological cost is super high, and I don't, and I'm just not inclined to believe that these adequately prepare people to deal with this already super rare situation. But there's certainly merit to yeah. I think there's. I think there's
1: a because part of what they've done is gone back and analyzed like. How many people died, and, and how did they die, and where were they? Were they trying to evacuate? Were they huddled in a room? And they looked at the differential. I hate to say this, but the differential risk uh, chance of death in in the different options, and tried to figure out that oh, these things actually don't help you, and these things do. Uh huh. I think that's uh, that knowledge empowers people.
0: Hmm. Before we move on to our, come follow me. We just wanted to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought and arts and culture. You can find out more about this at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. And with that, let's go ahead and move on to the Come Follow Me, which is first and second Peter. Uh, Derek, would you like to give us some context for these epistles?
1: Yeah. So the first thing when you open up First Peter is realize that it's written to a very diverse uh, community, several communities all over Asia, Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, and these these communities were very diverse, very different ethnic groups, um, and so you realize this. This isn't writing to one local situation, kind of like Paul was doing, where he's spi- fixing a specific problem at a specific time, but this is more of a general letter. And so that's gonna change the nature of the uh, how we read it. And um, tradition and the text identify the author as Peter. Scholars now are wondering whether Peter wrote it himself, or whether someone is trying to later, trying to faithfully uh, collect and transmit Peter's teachings after Peter's death So that's a scholarly uh, Debate that That it rages on and I'm not going to talk about In any depth But so let's Let's talk about what's going on One of the things that we get from 1 Peter Is The author is writing to Peoples who are suffering Persecution and the threat of increased persecution And that's kind of the main Thing that's going on And they're uh they seem to be gentiles who are suffering within the broader Roman empire. They're a mi- misunderstood minority. People think that they're suspect in some way. People think the Christians are suspect and, and don't trust them and want to resist them and harass them in in some unspecified ways. So that's where we are with with 1 Peter. Okay. I want to well, let me just go into what I was going to say in 1 Peter chapter two one of the biggest things that we get in first peter is sort of the value of suffering which is could be taken controversially but it it tests your character it refines your character it connects you with christ there's there's and the whole point of here's the thing about religion is a a lot of it is about meaning making if you can't make the suffering go away you have to make meaning out of the suffering in order to be able to go on living and and process it and maintain your sense of integrity and dignity despite everything else that's happening. Okay. So here's a, let me just go into chapter two. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but in chapter two verses six through 10, the author talks about being a chosen people, a living stone in verse seven. He talks about us as the stone that the builders rejected becoming the the cornerstone and in verse 9 he says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people acquired so that you can declare the virtues of the one who called you from darkness to his amazing light once you were not a people but now you're god's people i find that really empowering to people who are misunderstood today for whatever reason um. obviously I come from the queer perspective I realize, look, a lot of people are threatened by us have a suspicion about us think that we're weird Um, but I, I can sort of graft this onto the weirdness that the original Christian communities were experiencing and the author of 1 Peter is now grafting the language onto language from the Hebrew Bible about the chosenness of Israel and how this is called out to be a special people and then you get this language About the the stone which the builders rejected which is one of my favorite verses It comes from Psalm 118 verse 22 And to me that that's a really pro-queer verse Because the builders were the experts they they were the ones that thought they knew everything Mm -hmm. and they said well This stone doesn't fit and then God's the one who raises up and says no it does and it's not just fitting but an essential cornerstone for the whole building
0: I really like this idea of uh, centering uh, people like the peculiar people, I feel like Mormons are very quick to identify themselves as a peculiar people because of the things that they believe. And in a way, Peter does seem to be addressing, you know, the saints, he is addressing the saints because of their peculiarity. But what really made the saints peculiar in these at, at this particular time was how universal the church was. The church accepted Jews, Gentiles, people from all over the earth. It was preaching the gospel to everybody, and it was making sure that there was a space for everybody. What made the saints peculiar is that their most important identities as a peculiar people was their discipleship to Christ. And I feel like this is something we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can reanalyze and can reassess as we proceed in our discipleship? Are we peculiar in this same way? Are we making a place for everybody? Are we unique among our fellow Christians or are we unique among our fellow citizens in that we are creating a space whereby everybody can worship together and whereby everybody has the same worth, where everybody's extended equity, where everybody's extended a means to salvation and not just a means of salvation based on how much money they make, what they look like, where they grew up, or how, or mm-hmm. you know, other identifiers of 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 class distinction or whatever else. I just like that um, Christ seems to be, or Peter seems to be reinforcing. Finally, after all these instances of him being, you know, bigoted for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. he seems to finally be accepting, or at least. Formally acknowledging by his own hand that this is that this identifier of being a peculiar people is inclusive of everybody who would embrace Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do find that word choice interesting for several reasons, and you know, I won't really get into them now, but I just really like that it's peter that's saying this because peter needed some redemption you know based yeah. on what we've seen of peter in right. the book of acts and in the book of galatians he needed to be the one to say this and the fact that he that we have peter's own words by his own hand or as close to his own hand as we can get calling the saints a peculiar people in this particular context is really powerful
1: yeah and um one of the things to bring out is it looks like a substantial proportion of Peter's audience were enslaved people and women because those are the populations that he addresses in his advice later in in the epistle he doesn't mm-hmm. actually address masters like like Paul does mm-hmm. um so it looks like that's that's the the bulk of his concern and and so women and enslaved people formed uh, the bulk of of a lot of, of a lot of the early Christian communities in the house churches. Mm. So I want to go on to, let's should we go on to the stuff in chapter 3? I would love to
0: talk about the stuff in chapter 3. That's where the majority of my study was focused. This past yeah, week. tell me what
1: you learned in chapter 3.
0: So I was hoping to get a Greek lesson from you really briefly, Derek. Um, I looked it up myself, but I had... A question about the meaning of this word in 1st Peter chapter 3 Mm -hmm. verse 15 yeah I did look up the different translations of this verse and I just wanted to get an idea or at least validate what I Mm -hmm. understand about this verse from your understanding of Greek I'm just gonna read the verse real quick but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear now, the other translations of this particular verse translate the word answer as uh, defense.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Like, that's the, most, that's the most common one I've noticed. And the Greek has this word. I don't know what the proper Greek way to say it is. Yeah, apologia. Apologia. Mm-hmm. All right. Which seems to be the basis of, or seems to be the root word of what we call today apologia or apologetics right. in the Christian yeah. church and i found that super interesting because apologetics in certain contexts seems to be just a means to flex gospel or scriptural knowledge <laughs> on, you know, various kinds of fools, you know what i'm saying. However, Peter seems to be advocating for that, which means to me that i feel like we may have a faulty understanding of what exactly the purpose of apologetics is or what the purpose, what the idea behind defending Our beliefs is and I wanted to take a moment to uh, talk about that do do you have anything you want to say before we proceed
1: yeah so this word I would translate it as defense uh, not in the sense of a a physical uh, fight but in terms of a legal this is a legal term it's a legal term yes so in the courtroom the defendant would be uh, that's why he's called a defendant Uh, Would be allowed to make a case for for their innocence for their what they're doing is right or that they were you know And so that's kind of you see this word used in Acts where Paul gives a defense Uh, you see this word used in um, Plato's apology where Socrates defends himself before the uh, the Athenian jury which uh, he uh, You know the story? Uh, No, I don't know the story Well, so yeah, it's a very famous document. It's called uh, the title is apology and it's Socrates' defense as told by Plato to the Athenian jury and he he gives a this amazing case but he annoys the jury and then they sentence him to death. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so Dark. that's how that's how Socrates dies. Um, but yeah, so this is a this is a term of where you and and it doesn't mean apology in the sense of you said that what you did was wrong. Right, right. That's right. not what it means, and that's not what apologetics means either. It means you make a case for the legitimacy of what it is that you are saying. Yes, yes. And so apologetics can be good if it's done right, but for well, a lot of
0: people, according to Peter, it is good. Like yeah. it is a necessary part right. of, you know, it's. It, It's not only good, but it's a necessary part of preaching the gospel sometimes. It is. And it seems to be near essential to creating and developing mature Christians.
1: Right. Um, Like one proper use of apologetics would be to clear sort of false roadblocks. Yes. Right? Yes. Stumbling blocks that that are based on misconceptions or, you know, there are some stumbling blocks like the cross of Christ, which you can't remove. They are Mm -hmm. part of the core of Christianity. There is something transgressive and embarrassing about the cross that we can't fix mm-hmm. and we shouldn't fix. What do you mean by that? Transgressive and embarrassing. Well, our savior died. Yeah. You know, was crucified naked by the Roman Empire. This is in any sense of the messiah that you have almost reading from the Hebrew Bible. That would exclude you from being the Messiah. You did not win. You did right. not conquer. You did not have any sort of political or worldly success. If you get killed by the empire, naked on a tree, that's an outrage. This is a stumbling block mm. to the Jews, as um, Paul says in, in the beginning of First Corinthians. It's it's mm. an embarrassment. It is not uh, pretty. It is not. Uh, it's it, it's uh, it's it's transgressive to look at that and f- and say that's us. That's yeah. That's. That's my that's my dude right there on the cross. Yeah. That doesn't make any logical sense. Mm. That's what I mean. Okay. So you can't remove that stumbling block because otherwise you remove the core of the gospel. But you can remove like, oh, all these sort of misconceptions or someone mishears or misunderstands something and we can say, no, this is actually what we're doing. That right. role of apologetics is okay. But I think there's some sloppy apologetics that can happen where people try to defend stuff that's not defensible that's not and defensible like, or not. and they're like that's not pleasing to Christ either And I think you get some of these sloppy apologetics when you look at our history people Certainly. trying to trying to say that, well Joseph Smith wasn't a polygamist or he never engaged in folk magic practices when clearly he did or right. when people try to defend the priesthood ban and try to make sense of it and say well it was re- good for the no no don't defend that that's right bad apologetics. That's indefensible. right? That is not something we're supposed to defend.
0: And to engage in good apologetics, you don't need to defend that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like good apologetics is simply acknowledging that it did happen, but why? We can still embrace it. In fact, that's what apologetics is. It's the why to the what of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And you can engage in good apologetics without defending every reprehensible thing or Every under, everything that we understand to be reprehensible about either what is in Scripture or what is in our history, like that is something we can that is something we can do just fine. In fact, we see, and you know, you already talked about the examples that we have in the Scriptures of Paul doing this. We see we see Stephen doing this mm-hmm. in Acts chapter seven. Yeah. We see Christ Himself doing this, like yeah. using d- d- deferring to history, defending the Scripture, deferring to uh, his miracles and his resurrection to back up his own teachings. Like we see that. Uh, being engaged in that is a proper use of apologetics but like you said nonetheless there's some sloppiness and some shakiness around the general definition of the word apologetics that we seem to understand because people defend indefensible things
1: yeah and I want to highlight something here that's very interesting Mm -hmm. about missionary work yes because a lot of people think that missionary work is colonial in nature, and, mm-hmm. and some people implement it that way, of like going around to everyone who's not a member of our church and telling them they need to, to change. Right. And what I like about this is, um, so the author says, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks. Mm-hmm. To anyone who asks. Pantito is, atunti is what it is in Greek, which leaves room for consent here. Right. like if someone asks me about my faith then sure i can i can declare about it but if it there's no obligation here to go annoy people that aren't even asking me right, right? and right. i think some people burden themselves with this idea of like i got to go around and and force this on a, like no that's not the gospel if you're trying to do it that way and i think and th- it goes on to say not only um should you give an answer to a, a, a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, verse sixteen, but do so with meekness and fear, maintaining a good conscience, so basically it, you're supposed to come at it with with gentleness and respect i mean that's that's how I would translate the word behind fear is res- mm-hmm. respect with gentleness and respect, like some some missionary moments are not gentle and respectful, yeah right probably. The biggest thing we can do in missionary work is not to transmit information, but to transmit our character. Yeah, people will see something there and say, "I need that in my life." Right, right. Right?
0: I really think um, I wasn't totally sold on the idea of apologetics having a place in missionary work until I, you know, read through this chapter again. Mm -hmm. But you know, like I said before, I see I see apologetics as ultimately a means to the end of helping people accept the gospel as you said when done correctly and it's got to be done in gentleness and meekness I'm glad that you uh, brought that up and it has to be done consensually I'm glad you brought Mm. up this whole if they ask thing and it has to be done in a manner that allows or that is intended to remove distractions and obstacles away from people that would allow them to otherwise accept the gospel I came up with a dope analogy actually Ooh. Um, so if 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 you are the gospel messenger, then apologetics is like the bodyguard. You know what I'm oh, saying? Oh, yeah. The bodyguard is not the point, and the bodyguard right. is not the objective. Right. But without the bodyguard, you're compromised. Like, you have yeah. to know stuff. You'd have to know why you embrace your faith. You have to be able, Mm -hmm. like, is that hope still in you? And if it is, do you have a way of articulating it? Do you have a way to explain that to people so that they can accept it? So many people that want to accept the gospel don't really speak our language, and we have to be able to help them. We have to be able to speak a language that's familiar to them, and we have to be able to speak to them in a way that allows them To embrace the gospel and assuage their concerns, assuming they want to know and assuming they want to embrace the gospel, but can't because of these things that are in the way. Are you familiar with uh, Marvin Perkins?
1: Yes, I am.
0: Okay, so Marvin Perkins, dude literally changed my life. Like his Blacks in the Scriptures lecture series with Darius Gray literally changed the course of my membership in this church. I'll forever be indebted to him and Darius for the work they have done to allow me to get out of my own way in embracing the gospel in explaining mm-hmm. these things with our questionable history regarding race, explaining questionable interpretations of Latter day Saint scripture, uh, among several other things. But something that really stuck with me was what Darius, or not Darius, but what Marvin said about his own experience in investigating the church. Mm-hmm. Now, when he investigated the church, he did not have a place to go for answers. Like he had questions about oh. the questionable terminology in the Book of Mormon with regard to race, particularly being cursed with the skin of blackness. He had questions about the history of the church with regard to the priesthood and temple restrictions. The members around him didn't have any answers, and that set him back quite a while. Like, I think it was a good two years before he was actually able to, you know, be baptized like a year or two that he before he was able to be baptized because, as he says, members of the church didn't have oil in their lamps this is where i believe apologetics could have played a really really important and great role is if people simply knew how to talk to marvin about you know the history of the church and about the words that are present in the scriptures Mm -hmm. this is where apologetics can really come to come into play like many there are several black people that this experience is not you, I mean it, this experience is not unique to Marvin. Right. I know black people who ref, who stopped investigating the church because of these issues and couldn 't find answers. I know black people who have left the church because they couldn 't find answers to these issues i'm like i 'm definitely in that latter group. I almost was in that latter group, but um, we as latter day saints we 're failing if we 're not living up to this particular teaching given by Peter to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We mm-hmm. have to be able. Mm-hmm to talk to people who are on the margins, you know, of society in a way that allows them to accept the gospel. Like one big reason I think I'm going to be like into apologetics now is because this is going to play a critical role in preaching the gospel, particularly to people on the margins right, of society. Right. Now you've said it on this show before, Derek, several times, but I would hope that, you ac- that you're able to relay it
1: again. Why do you know the scripture so well, Derek? Because I have to,
0: you have to. I have say to say more about that, Derek.
1: Oh, but I've already said this so many times. But people may just now be listening to the show, okay. so like just briefly repeat. So why you have is, to know it? So the thing is, is uh, especially compared to gay people raised in the church. Yep. My experience is very different. Like um, they, they were they were brought up in the church and then realized they were gay. And I, I'm gay first, and I joined the church, which takes an uh, a significant amount of stability and integrity to be able to take that step. Like mm-hmm. no, I I hate to say n- no one would would let's see. N- let me just say it this way: It's very rare that a gay person will 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 intentionally join this church, mm-hmm. right? Um, and but in order to do that. I need to u- know the scriptures and the tradition and the doctrine better than anyone who would use it against me in order for me to survive even a moment in this church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And it just so happens that I automatic already had a natural passion for the scriptures, which um, I, I hate to brag about, but it just so happens that it kind but of you like, you got a right to, it's not bragging because you back it, it up. It just, Barrett? it's just so happy. It's kind of like if someone just happens to love vegetables instead of donuts, like, wouldn't they be blessed? <laughs> they would be blessed, <laughs> right? Like, right. This is just who you are. Yeah. American. So I just happen to n- automatically and naturally like the vegetables, and other yeah. people go through scripture study. I'm like, oh, I hate this, <laughs> but I love it. I mean, it's uh, and it feeds my soul. It it just changes my life, and it, and it allows me to have the the tools to one minister to people, and yeah. two to empower my own people. Yeah. Right. Without those, without a, a command of the scriptures. I I don't have much of a uh, much of a platform in the church yeah and so people tend to respect me no one even if they disagree with me they still respect me and say Derek must have a really good reason for for saying that or doing that Mm -hmm. and then they and then they leave me alone yeah because they don't they don't want to uh, and no one no one really debates me right (laughs) because they they know better they wouldn't they know they would lose people who know know me
0: (laughs) Okay, I mean, this is what I wanted to hammer on with regard to apologetics and why I want members to aspire to this kind of thing is because if they are in this position, they are in a better position to minister to others. They they, they're not only in a better position to minister to others, but they are more secure and confident in their own testimony and in their own faith. Like I can't Mm -hmm. tell you how much I really appreciate I had about six to nine months off before my own mission and in that time i spent a lot of time in the scriptures i even got this little uh this little book for missionaries called the missionary's little book of answers now like i'll admit i didn't use a lot like it's basically an introduction to apologetics for missionaries that's what that book is now granted i didn't have to use a lot of that information in that book it turns out i actually used certain passages like regularly throughout my whole mission. Yeah. turns out the people of South Africa had more or less the same issues with Mormonism. But I was very secure in my own faith because I was able to logically talk about why I believe what I do um, to people who spoke that language. I knew how I felt about the church and I knew what my faith was and I knew that it was secure in my heart. But being able to have a way to express that logically to people was super empowering so I can't say enough about how empowering it can be for people to learn how to not only have that hope in themselves but also be able to articulate it to others like that's super empowering uh, both for
1: yourself and to the people that you will inevitably minister Hmm. to yeah and what I love is what Rabbi B'nai Lapi said I have the (laughs) you quote this person a lot (laughs) Uh, She I I had the privilege of learning with her in person and that's Mm -hmm. kind of one of the highlights of an honors of my life she said that we We meaning queer Jews in her context. She says we Need to master our tradition or else our tradition will master us Mm -hmm. And I think we could say that for LGBT members in the church um, Members of color in the church women in the church our tradition can and will be used against us. Yes, like I'm now sounding like the the Miranda warning, but yes, <laughs> this can and will be used against you unless you know it better than those who will who would use it against you, so are you ready to talk about something challenging it about first Peter if we must I think we should because cause there's there it could be helpful to many of our listeners all right, let's talk about it where are we we're 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 still going to be talking about this first Peter three thing for okay. a moment and I, I don't want to burst your bubble because you seem to like Peter a lot, but there's there's some limitations to what he's doing here. Okay. One is, uh, you know how there's a tendency among any marginalized people for people to want to assimilate to the oppressor and of to appease them and to become respectable? Of course. Well, that's what Peter's doing here. Mm. Because if you look at the context of this, it's not really about missionary work, it's about what to do when people are persecuting you. That's literally what he says in the verses right beforehand. But if you were to suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, verse uh, 314. And then then he goes into the next verse, that's when you need to be ready to offer defense of saying, Mm -hmm. look, we're not bad, we're not, you know, don't hurt us, Which, which is a survival strategy that Peter found useful for his community but we can't take that well, – I think we should just name that that's what's going on here. To some extent, he's engaging in, oh, but if we just explain it right, our oppressors won't hurt us. And that it doesn't work, mm-hmm. really. you can't, Or you can't rely on that. And so I just want to name that. And part of the way he wants to assimilate and become respectable has to do with the um, – Relationships in the Roman household, especially for enslaved people and yeah, women. And Peter gives people respectable. advice. Respectable. Because part that of the, the problem is there's this underlying towards liberatory and egalitarian spirit yeah. within Christianity that would lead people, women, to think that they're equal. And of course they are. And lead enslaved people to think that they're free. And of course they are. Mm-hmm. But that will cause trouble when you're already a suspect minority and now. You as a Christian group, or if you look to look like you're rebellious or or Upsetting the 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 family. Oh look these these Christians. They're changing the definition of the family Well, that's literally what they were doing, right? so I'm not going to get into the details of what Peter told wives and enslaved people to do But that's it is not what I would tell people to do right Mm -hmm. and so we have to name this of that. He is engaging in this this type of assimilationist And respectability politics strategy, which uh, we we can't blame him too much for, because that's what that is—a very easy temptation for marginalized peoples, Mm -hmm. especially as a survival strategy. But knowing that actually empowers us, because then that allows us to to come away with three different conclusions. Mm -hmm. Knowing that this is what he's doing, the first one is to realize a. Because he's having to say this in this context. It's actually showing that many enslaved people and women want to join this movement. Many lower class people want to join this movement. Mm -hmm. Which shows that there's something at the heart of Christianity. that something at the heart of the Jesus movement that is liberatory and life-giving to these populations. And that we can claim. We yeah. don't have to claim Peter's specific advice But we can claim that spirit in the core Yeah. The second thing we can learn is That There must be um, uh, Like I said Not only do people join But it also empowers and liberates those who are there Because if he, What he, what Peter's doing is responding to Criticism and responding to challenges From the outside and those challenges and From the outside are saying oh look You are um, if he's telling the the women and this enslaved people to get in line, there must be something about Christianity that made them feel that they didn't have to be in line, mm-hmm. and that we can claim, right? right? We sort of unpeel that layer and go back to this more underlying foundation that says, "Look, there's something amazing and powerful in this that imp- that not only attracts." Uh, Marginalized groups, but also empowers them even in the threat of a a society that will Will be suspicious about that Mm -hmm. and the third thing that we can do is When we realize that what he's doing is engaging in sort of this Respectability and assimilationist thing to the surrounding culture That frees us up when the culture is different to no longer follow that advice because if his whole point is strategic and tactical rather than ideological then it only, then it doesn't apply in a situation where you do have the emancipation of enslaved people and you do have the equality of women. You don't need to follow that advice for living in a culture where that you need to say that to be respectful. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a way of reading this against the grain and uh, tapping into the underlying core of what what was so liberatory for these populations, and then carrying that trajectory to its conclusion, say Christianity should liberate and dignify all of these populations, and carrying that out to its conclusion of that's actually the ultimate hope of Christianity, not this particular tactical compromise that somehow Peter—oh, that reminds me, looking at this type of strategy— we find out that the author of we know how scholars are always wondering who authored first Peter. We now that it, we know it was Peter Buddha <laughs> <What>? judge <laughs> because of this assimilationist and okay. respectability thing. Right. It yeah. Was, so <laughs> I made a Goodness. joke, <laughs> You did, <that. laughs> but you see my point though, that there's going to be different people um, navigating the persecution differently. And yeah. I think, I can't obviously defend, going back to I'll apologize, I can't defend what some of the New Testament authors say about uh, slavery and women or LGBT or what, what ends up being imposed on LGBT identities. But we can look at some of these things in a healthy way and, and go and tap into the core and see where the trajectory is going. Yeah. Okay.
0: Those are some great insights. I really like those. I should have written them down if I knew you were going to have a whole three point system.
1: First uh, Peter fourteen <laughs> through sixteen, and I just wanted to mention one thing real quick from from First Peter four. First Peter four. Yes, all right. Basically, that we should rejoice in our suffering. So this is First Peter four verses thirteen through sixteen, and yeah, if you if anyone suffers as a Christian, let that person not be ashamed. So yeah, th- I think there's, I think that's really, really interesting how he's making meaning out of suffering.
0: Mm-hmm. This isn't the first time we've come across that particular instruction either in the uh, in the New Testament. Like, right. Paul has uh, said as much. Jesus has said as much. Right. I remember us uh, reading,
1: and there are examples of it too.
0: And there are examples of it. They're all examples of it, and they're basically telling us that there is uh, glory to be found in suffering, and there's even. Well, I mean, you've already said it, but there's happiness to be found in suffering because you have the promise of eternal life to look forward to. In fact, that's something that Paul says at the beginning of this chapter, um, chapter one verse or sorry, chapter four, verse one through two. As Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. By the way, very interesting phrase. I'm going to come back to that in a second. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh of the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Just that phrase, arm yourselves with the same mind. He's basically telling us, think like Christ. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we learn, I think it was in either in the book of Timothy or, I don't know who, I don't remember who wrote it, but basically saying that for the joy that was set before him, did Christ suffer? Mm-hmm. That's in Hebrews. That's in Hebrews. Okay. Thank you for, thank yeah. you for clarifying. But, this idea just seems to repeat all throughout these uh, latter books in the New Testament that there is joy to be ha- had in suffering primarily because there is a promise of great things that await us after death or great things that await us in the eternities. It just seems to be a resounding and recurring theme throughout the latter part of the New Testament mm-hmm. or at least the
1: Pauline epistles. That's all I wanted to say about that. And then I just want to quickly say something from Second Peter chapter 1. And this is verses 3 and 4. And so basically God has a plan for us. It says, this is the Thomas Wayman translation, His divine power has given us all things necessary for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness, by which He has given us His great and precious promises, so that through them you may become participants in the divine nature after having escaped from the corruption in the world generated by lust and i find what's so empowering about this is that a lot of people think is that religion is about what god wants from us but really it's a it's about what god wants for us Mm -hmm. that it's not that god needs our obedience so that he feels better god wants to shape us and share with us what what his life is like his life and his love and that's where we become partakers of the divine nature. Mm-hmm. And what was right before that is that he's got a plan for this. He's got he's got a plan. He's got this, this system that all things necessary uh have been given to us. And I think that should be very hopeful for for people who are like in my situation, who are queer, who think like, "Oh, we're lost and something's wrong and we'll never we'll never see equality or dignity in the church. We will never see happiness. We will never get our happy endings, but this promises me that God has already given us all things. We just Mm -hmm. have to unfold them and unpack them and, and develop into our divine natures.
0: It's pretty amazing. That is pretty amazing. There's one more thing. And I think I want to end with this question for you, Derek, because this is actually also in second Peter chapter one. Um, Later in these verses, we read in like, Peter lists off these, all these Christ-like attributes from verses Mm 5 to 7. And then he says something super interesting in verse 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you, that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I found that super interesting because I, I feel like I've heard this said before, but I just wanted to get your take on what exactly this means because I thought about it a little bit, but not a lot how is it possible or rather how does it work or what does it mean what does it mean for us that we will come to know christ by developing christ-like attributes i like how does seeking virtue knowledge patience and other virtues help us gain knowledge of our lord jesus
1: christ so the knowledge that's talked about here isn't sort of an academic Or theoretical knowledge It's a practical and experiential knowledge Because once you've been in the situation Where you've had to Have these Christ-like attributes Where you've had to love Where you've had to uh, endure Where you've had to persevere Where you've had to have self-control That gives you an experience That connects you with Christ And you understand more of what Christ did And what Christ is doing
0: Mm -hmm. I think a lot about what gave my spiritual ancestors the strength they needed to, to not do harm to those who would deny them personhood. Mm-hmm. I think a lot about that. I think a lot about being in that same situation and not being able to exercise patience and temperance and the virtues that they exercise if somebody was trying to deny me personhood. Do you think there's a chance that they got a taste of this? That they came to know what it was to be like Christ, because they developed these Christ-like attributes that allowed them to be such fabulous and such excellent fighters for their personhood.
1: Well, that is consistent with what Peter said in in First Peter about you know spirit uh, suffering actually builds your character, it refines you, it 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 burns away all of the the, the bad things. Um, I think that that is where Peter's going with that. Okay. And I don't want to romanticize suffering too much, of course. Neither do I. Neither do I. But I want to name that religion, a lot of religion and spirituality is about meaning-making and mm-hmm. making meaning out of the suffering and, and figuring out, well, where is this going? How can I use this? And how can I transcend it? And how can I ultimately overcome it? And I think that's that's kind of what the message of the resurrection is. Yes, this cross was was an embarrassment. But we've got victory in the resurrection. Yeah.
0: With the conclusion of Come Follow Me, just wanted to let you guys know that the Mormon News Report podcast covers the week in Mormon news with a healthy dose of snark and commentary. Join Brant and Jenny every Monday to get caught up on the top stories you need to stay up to date on the top stories in Mormon news. Every Monday, that's the Mormon News Report. And that will lead us into our concluding segment, the prayer roll. And uh, I'm going to keep this brief because we're already we're already over here. But uh, the only thing I wanted to talk about this week, I'm pretty sure a lot of you may have seen this story in the news, uh, the, Pima, the Pima County Sheriff's deputy was uh, wrestling a teenage uh, quadruple amputee to the ground, and he also arrested the person filming it. This particular incident happened back in September, but we're just now seeing the video, which has brought up all kinds of questions with regard to how we treat uh, children in group homes, how we treat children, period, how we treat uh, black teenagers, and how we treat people with disabilities. Yeah. Now, uh, what happened was this boy knocked a trash can over, and he was yelling to somebody. To uh, he was yelling in this group home, so somebody called the cops on him. Now, the sheriff's deputy shows up, pins him to the ground, and he eventually gets off of him, but he also yells at him when he gets off of him. And when the kid being yelled at asks him to stop, the cop continues to yell at him, saying all kinds of obscenities. Now, again, this kid he's yelling at and pinning and putting in a headlock as well has no limbs. Doesn't have a shirt on or anything like that as well. So if, even if he had a weapon on him, he wouldn't be able to get it. And it's also very difficult to hide one. But anyway, um, the kid filming it asks him to stop. The, de- the sheriff's deputy tells him to be quiet. Actually tells him to shut up because he's not involved in this. And after some more verbal exchange, the cop arrests both teens and charges them with disorderly conduct. And those charges ultimately got dropped. But I have so many questions about this. Like I said, this teenager has no arms, no legs, no shirt on. He couldn't have had a weapon on him. And even if he did, he couldn't have gotten to it. So I, I want to know, first off, what about this young man made this full-grown officer feel threatened enough that he had to put him in a headlock and put his whole body weight on him? And second, who felt so threatened by this kid knocking over a trash can and screaming that they had to call the police on him? Like, I, I got questions about this group home, and I got questions about who's running it. Because, like, it seems that not that this cop is not the only person who's in the wrong field of work. This group home runner or whoever is in charge here, definitely in the wrong line of work as well. Now, this again, I said this video came out just this week, but the incident was back in September. And why is this the reason we're first hearing about this? There were witnesses to this, whole exchange. The police officer that went in here had a partner with him, which means his partner didn't report this incident and this whole thing wasn't reported by anybody. So I got I got questions about that as well. Why is this the first time we're hearing about this? And why didn't the cop who witnessed this whole thing, somebody who is supposed to be serving and protecting people, cuz teenagers don't know how the law works. They don't know who to call. They don't know how to file a complaint. Like This police officer that was present did not call or did not, you know, cry foul on his partner who was straight up abusing a teenage quadruple amputee. Like this right here is why marginalized folks don't trust officers of the law. Like when our civil rights are violated, they don't police themselves, but they protect themselves from scrutiny. They they, they treated a disabled black child with this kind of scorn, and the guy is only just now going on administrative leave. Just this week, he's going on administrative leave. And the children had no means to seek redress and no one, not those in charge of the group home, nor those in charge or, you know, the other officer. Like nobody stepped in like this is how you lose legitimacy right here. Like that this brutality happened to a disabled person and no one sought to redress on his behalf until the video surfaced. tells us way too much about how little we value uh, people in disabled bodies. And it tells us a lot about how. we we value black children. This this, this pattern of dehumanizing behavior has been happening to black folk for literal years with video evidence, and yet the police are still not losing sufficient legitimacy with much of the American public. I, I don't know. Just the way the American public has responded to this, it tells you everything you need to know about how little we value the black body.
1: Yeah, and I don't have much to say, but I think the rise of cell phones with video capabilities and the internet has changed the conversation because these things have always happened. It's just now, now white people have a reason to believe what black people have always been saying all along. Right. But now we can't deny it. We we see the videos and we're like, yeah, this, this is, this is not right.
0: But rest assured, there are some people on the internet trying to justify what this police sheriff's deputy had done. And, um, you know we still have a ways to go we thought rodney king was going to be a turning point because there was video evidence uh, of police brutality with that but that didn't change anything like people still have the audacity to ask what did rodney do he must have done something to merit all those club strikes all those you know 20 plus officers beating him up and beating him with batons like there we 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 still even with video evidence even though we can't deny the brutality we are still finding ways to justify the police officers' behavior, yeah. and again, this is why there's generally speaking a distrust towards police officers in you know the black and brown community, and why there's general skepticism of public consciousness because this stuff can still happen with video evidence, and still nothing happens. Right. So, yeah, I don't know, man. We just see, we just saw yet another case of police brutality on a black teenage quadruple amputee and administrative leave is all that's happening. So I'm going to I'm I'm just going to pray for this officer that he finds compassion and some sense of meaning that lets him feel like he is somebody so he doesn't have to beat up a 15-year-old quadruple amputee to feel like he's somebody or that he's doing a job. Right. Yeah. That's
1: all. So with that, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up the show. Derek, you got some housekeeping ads yes. for us. So you can find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com. There's also a survey that's still going to be up for One another more week. week. Yeah. yeah. And you can and we would love to hear feedback from you to help make this show make this show, oh, make this show great again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making the merch now. <laughs> um yeah, because we're here for you. We're here as a as a service to the needs of the the listeners and so we want to address what it is that you need to hear. And so let us know what's going on and we'll, we'll fold all of that in to our material. Then the other thing I wanted to talk about was it would be lovely for you to share. Like pick one episode that has really, really touched you or really solved a problem for you yeah. or really helped you. And take that one episode and share it with others. Send it to people. Share it on social media. And that could really, really help people out there. And if you don't have one particular episode on our website, there is a list of Maybe some of the best of that that you can or a good starting place for people. But yeah, share the love and we will see you again next week.
0: Great stuff, Derek. Thank you for sharing that. We will see all of you next week. Bye.